0: Mark Caro and welcome to episode 69 of Carol Pop. Nice. Our guest this week is the sole full-time Wings member whose last name isn't McCartney, Denny Lane. We've already said. Lane was the original singer-guitarist of the Moody Blues. He sang their 1964 hit, Go Now, and decades later was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with that band. Since He left the Moody's in 1966 and the following year released the solo single Say You Don't Mind, which the Zombies, Colin Bloomstone, later recorded as a top 20 single. Lane formed the Electric String Band with Trevor Burton of The Move, and the two of them also played in Ginger Baker's Air Force. Then, in 1971, he got a call from Paul McCartney. Lane had gotten to know the Beatles back when the Moody Blues opened for them. Now, McCartney wanted to know whether Lane would join his first post-Beatles band. Lane said yes. Soon, Lane, drummer Denny Sywell, and Paul and Linda McCartney were popping up unannounced on British college campuses to introduce Wings. They also quickly recorded their debut album, The Resolutely Unambitious Wildlife. Wings went through multiple personnel changes as it evolved from a ragged club band to the arena conquering Wings Over the World juggernaut. Only Lane and the McCartneys remained constant. After Siwell and guitarist Henry McCulloch exited Wings in 1973, Paul, Linda, and Denny traveled to Nigeria to record what's widely considered the best Wings album Band on the Run. It includes no words, which Lane co wrote. Guitarist Jimmy McCulloch and drummer Joe English joined for the albums Venus and Mars and At the Speed of Sound. The latter of those included Lane's Time to Hide as well as the hit single Silly Love Songs, which showcases the band's interweaving vocals from Lane and the two McCartneys. Wings Again was down to Paul, Linda and Denny by the time it finished 1978's London Town and the single that preceded it the folk tune, Mull of Kintyre. Lane and McCartney co-wrote that song, little knowing it would become, at the time, the biggest ever British hit single. Of
1: Kintyre, in from the sea My desire is always to be here.
0: Final Wings' lineup featured guitarist Lawrence Juber and drummer Steve Holley who played on the rocking, underrated 1979 album *Back to the Egg*. I've been includes Lane's last wing song again and again and again as well as two songs featuring the star-studded rockestra. The Wings' touring ambitions were derailed when Paul McCartney was arrested and briefly imprisoned for cannabis possession in Japan. That incident inspired Lane's solo single Japanese Tears. Wings never returned to the road and with a couple of years was officially over. Summer rain, a lotus blossom on the Lane has continued to write, record, and perform since then, and in recent years has been touring his solo songs and stories show. I caught a 2019 performance of it and loved hearing him play and talk about those songs. His latest US go round begins Friday, February 3rd, in Nashville. Lane spoke with me from his Florida home, and we covered much ground, including what prompted him to leave the Moody Blues. Which Wings lineup does he consider the strongest? What was the key factor that prevented each Wings lineup from gelling? Was Lane disappointed that the album Red Rose Speedway was reduced from a double to single album, leaving off his song I Would Only Smile? What was co-writing with McCartney like? How did they wind up with so many co-written songs on London Town, including the Lane song Deliver Your Children and "Children Children Children? McCartney write and record Mull of Kintyre on McCartney's Scotland Farm. Were they surprised at what a massive hit it became? Were they annoyed when American radio stations flipped the single and played the more rocking "Girl School" instead? What did Lane think of the orchestra? How did McCartney work with outside producers? What marked the end of Wings? And has Lane ever noticed how a certain Beatles song kind of lifts the piano break of "Go Now"? Enjoy having Denny Lane in your ears in this CaroPop conversation.
1: I'll begin my story now that you have set me free.
0: The beauty of music is how it sort of grows and changes over time. Yeah. I f- I feel like uh, say you don't mind mm. is is a song that's you know over time becomes sort of a classic you know and and oh, you you'd recorded it and you had a single and yeah. Colin Blunstone had a top twenty hit with it in seventy two but I feel like that's become mm-hmm. like a real you know standard now you
1: know that's great you're saying that thanks but you know one of the the brother from Oasis I forget his name Neil is it. He yeah, said it was one of the best songs you ever heard of. I mean, that was a compliment out of the blue. But yeah, what we like is the fact that, and I've heard Paul say this, when they did Little Help for my friends Joe Cocker, they did a completely different version, which proves the song as a song is, you know, great right. song. And and Colin did the same with Say Don't Mind. So we like that. We don't like it when people try to copy
0: what you've got, you know, because it's not the same. It's just another story. So, right, and when you do your shows and you're doing these songs, you know, you know, acoustic, it's like you're just getting at the 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 heart of the song, and you're like, yeah, that's just a great song, you know. And it does, not right. you know, it's great to hear it ar- arranged and everything, and with a lot of production. And it's also great to just hear it with just yeah. your voice and the instrument.
1: Well, the, the whole point of that is that you're actually hearing the instrument that was written on, and that means you know all the parts are there. You you don't necessarily hear the. The guitar so much when it's a part of a production, you know, and that's the most important part. So that's what—that's the whole idea of it. And I mean, it's like Elton John. You—you'll always hear his piano. You know what I mean? Because right. he's a piano player, and it, it wouldn't be sunk into the thing as much. But a lot of the stuff that I've done in the past, the main part is sunk into this track so much you can't even hear it, and it, it becomes another story, another song altogether. Because some parts are missing somehow.
0: Do you always write on guitar?
1: No. I uh, did a whole album where I wrote everything on keyboards. Um, you know, I've done a few like that. I've even written on keyboards and then had people come in and add keyboards, like Rick Wakeman came in on one album and added a whole other layer of keyboards over the top. So, you know, it depends really what... what I, what I feel like doing sometimes. I I might be sitting there and then just get into writing on that instrument, you know. But usually it's guitar because it's the most handy one to have around, you know
0: when you're writing are you sitting you know on your guitar or at your keyboard or Mm -hmm. are you sometimes just like you know walking and suddenly you have an idea and then you Um, just have to make sure you get it down before you forget (laughs) it
1: well i usually forget most stuff but that that means that i always remember the good stuff you get what i mean and it right. really does work that way. And then um, you know, an idea can come to you anywhere, obviously. You can jot down a, a title for a song. You might be sitting on the plane and somebody reminds you something, and you put that down. And then as long as you've got that as an idea, then you can write the rest, really. You know. Right. So, so if somebody gives me an idea to say, like I did a, a musical once with a friend of mine, he said, Well, I want it's all about the Arctic. And I said, Okay. So we got some titles, yeah. So I knew what to write for those titles, you see. I, I then study it, go into it deeper, but it's always the title that gives you the, you know, the inspiration for the rest of the song. Like My and Tyre was like that, very much like that, where Paul just had that line. I said, well, yeah, we should record this. And he says, oh, I don't know if I want to do a Scottish song, they might lynch me, you know. <laughs> so I, said, I said, no, let's do it. And then we wrote the lyric the next day and it became the biggest hit ever <laughs> You know, it's like what can you do you
0: know of course i'm in the u.s so i heard girl school mm. on the radio and i'm like oh great song and i picked yeah. it up and i flipped it over and i'm like oh moll of kintyre this is very nice too and then i was yeah. reading well this is actually the largest biggest hit in yeah. british singles history but in the uh-huh. u.s they flipped it over
1: i know unbelievable and that was just because they didn't think that a scottish Based song was going to be A single in America Which is ridiculous to me You know, that's that's out of my hands in some ways Because I Well, it was On the Wings Over the World uh, You know, Hits album sure a lot of people do know it over here but it would have been huge as a single and not not just a b-side
0: i thought, but anyway so that's beside the point people get to know the song when you're meant to get to know it but uh but yeah i found that that sort of fascinating and i'd seen that i'd read somewhere that that was like on a that he had sort of like a little piano demo of it from like years earlier and then the two of you got together and recorded it outside or like how did that how did that actually happen It
1: was actually the day
0: after. I went over,
1: see, Paul's got a few buildings on that farm up there. And I was staying in one on the other side of the hill. And I went over for bre- breakfast. He invited me over for breakfast every morning. So I'd go over and he was just playing around with this song. Um, and it was at the breakfast table with a guitar. You know, I said, that's something we should work on. And the next day we got together over at my place. And because it was outside and all the echoes and stuff, we said, "Well, this is where we should." Re-. And he also had built a studio in in one of the buildings there. So we recorded it there with a mobile unit, you know. And then we recorded the the, um, the drums and the and the pipes outside. So we got all the natural echoes from the hills. Right. Just you can't, you know, you can't reproduce that. It's just the way it was. And so that that was a bit of magic there um and you know it came together really well just because of that i think because of this, and because these guys were so great you know the, the camel pipe band was so great and, and such a laugh too you know and it was it was a great experience all around so and it went huge and it, it actually came out at christmas in england and we did a show like a major tv show at christmas and of course it went huge you know
0: viral great. yeah were the were the bagpipes always part of the arrangement or did that come later?
1: Well no, it came later. But but you see, what what it is, when you write in a certain key, which we did, um when the bagpipes came in, they were in a slightly different key. Right. So we had to add whatever it was to the guitar, use capos or whatever to make their their drone, you know, their mm, is in a certain key. So we had to tune our guitars to that drone. To 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 record it really knowing that that drone was going to be in that key we had to record it in that key so they came in um, with an arrangement that fitted what they uh, they can play on a pipe you know it's like a mouth organ uh, harmonica you're only restricted to certain notes you can play on a blues harp not on right. a classic harp but on a blues harp so it's the same with pipes so because they have certain notes that they can't get you have to to Do the arrangements around the ones that they can get, if you see what I'm saying?
0: Well, Were you was- all surprised at how huge that song was? I mean, you got a you know, sort of a folk song, Scottish yep. folk song with bagpipes on it. And it's like, uh-huh. yep, that's bigger than every single that's ever been released in this country. Yeah, I know. Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, but you know, we had faith in it. We knew it was good. And we and and the fact that it was in three, four times, a little bit like going out, you know. And um and, and the fact that it was just a like a Scottish anthem, almost. Even though it's almost like somebody else wrote it, you know. You when you listen to it, you go, "Oh," because it has that that very simple thing. And with the right. pipes, of course. Oh, come on, forget it. You know, I mean, Glenn Campbell re- met, re- recorded it and played the, played the guitar and the pipes on that one. So he was showing off he could play the pipes anyway. That was funny.
0: You you said that uh, Paul sent you the big that massive box of all of the singles. Yeah. Uh, so was that really from Paul? And was that like was that yeah. your Christmas present from Paul? Oh, and-
1: no, 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 no. Every time something new comes out, they send me it. It got lost in the post at one point, and then they had to re-reissue it to, to an old address. But it's not a massive box. It's
0: only the size. It's it's a singles, you know, right. all the singles. And and it's it's a lot of single singles card. though. Yeah, it's It's size. not as big as an LP box, but it's no. it's for, for for a singles box. It's a decent sized oh, crew. That's right. Yeah, and it was. So my- did- did you actually go through and you know put them on your turntable no. and listen to the A side and the B side and the A side and the B side?
1: I, I ain't got around to that yet. <laughs> no, I haven't got around to that yet. But yeah, some of them are re, obviously re, um, remastered, and it's. I mean, it's always interesting to see what they've done to that, you know, with the latest technology. Because it's always great that they do things to things and make them sound even better in some ways, you know. But you know, having said that. Mono is always the best way to receive anything. If it was recorded in mono, it's always the best way to listen to it, you know, because you can't really reproduce that same close sound by having it across all different speakers in the room. You know, that's kind of the modern way, but the old way. And that's why the young, younger people, I would say young, but most people are now going back to mono, you know, because of that, because you get it all in one package at one speaker.
0: Yeah, the 60s albums, you know, there were so many of them were mixed to mono and with mono in mind. And, you know, we, you know, even something as elaborate as Sgt. Pepper, yeah. the mono mix was the one you wanted well, to hear. The problem with
1: stereo is, I mean, it comes from looking at a stage where there's a guitar over there and then there's a piano over there. You know, they put them on separate sides, right? And then they try and mix it into, you know, general mono almost sound but it's coming off the stage from different sides well it's the same in the studio if you but if you can hear something in one ear and you can't hear it in the other ear it's kind of weird you know yeah suddenly the guitar solo comes up in your left ear it's like wait a minute you know it doesn't have the same you know impact as being a part of the band a part of the, the central mix as you say it has to be it has to come across in the center to me as close as possible so that one instrument isn't standing out on its own somewhere. You know, that's, that's really, the thing about production is that you've got to be careful. You don't overproduce in that way, you know, because as you say, in the old days, you didn't have a choice. That was what you stuck with one master, you know, and then that was it. But then with all this 32, 48 tracks, God knows what else. Right. You tend to overdo it. A lot of people do anyway.
0: Do you go back and listen to those old Wings albums or, you know, or for that matter, you work with the Moody Blues and the other bands you were in yeah. in the 60s? Yeah, I do.
1: <laughs> Usually when I'm trying to re- write, remember a song to do on stage, that's when I'll, I'll look into that stuff, like I am now. But, yeah, and, and you know what? Pleasantly surprised, actually, because you at the time you've done it, it's like you've lived it for that period of time and you've had enough of it by then, and then it comes out. And then you don't listen to it, really. I mean you might hear a track here and there on the radio, but but then years later when you listen to it, I think you appreciate it more for as a an outsider looking in. You're not as up you know, up close and sort of critical and whatever. You just hear it as a as an outsider. And that's been a pleasant surprise for me. So as I say, we didn't do too bad in the first place, but we always thought we we didn't do great either. You know, it could always be better, you see what I'm saying. So that's really the the benefit of listening to stuff now, so that I can relearn really the song somehow. Um, I wanna hear what the original what line was, or whatever that line was, or you know, I don't do exactly the same ever, but I'm just saying it's nice to hear the original and mess around with with the, the notes here and there, you know, when you're doing it solo. Obviously, obviously, I, I add a lot more when I'm doing things solo. I, I just play more or sing more. There's just something about it that you can do. You can improvise more when you're doing it solo than when you're doing it. Like like a tribute band copies a record note for note, right? Well, I can't do that, and I wouldn't want to do that. But it's just... You know, that's what you do. You have the opportunity to to do it now, as you as you're playing now, as you're playing has improved or whatever. You forget most of what you knew anyway. But you, <laughs> yeah, but you become this other person now, and then you can do them in a very similar way but slightly better way in some ways so it's tighter you know in those days you didn't know it that well you just went and recorded it and did it but then <laughs> then when you've learned it over the years then you can play it a little bit better
0: yeah that's the way it works well, yeah, I mean, when you do a song like Go Now, you had no idea that you're going to be playing that song for, you know, 55 years or 57 years or whatever it's been. And that the song was sort of holed up and that you would hear it still. And, and uh, you know, and it's it's like this timeless, you know, classic song that at the time you did it, it was just the song that you had just recorded.
1: We just recorded it because we had a piano in the band. And we knew we needed piano songs as much as possible. You know, piano-based Songs rather than the Beatles, which is like a four guitar, three guitar, drum setup. We had a piano, so we. But when I do that live, I I can do it on piano. I'm just not taking the piano around with me at the moment. I just do it on guitar, so it works as a song either way, like you say, because of its nostalgic value and and whatever. And and yeah, it's it's what I played on the guitar on the on the recording, you know. So it still works.
0: So, I found it fascinating when the when the white album sort of reissued deluxe box came out and in the notes for the song Long, 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 it talked about how George had said for the for the bridge, oh, play the piano like Go Now." And <laughs> I had made that connection, but when you listen to Long, 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 the Beatles song, and you yeah. hear the, what the piano's doing on it, you're like, "Oh, it's it's totally Go Now." Did you I ever realize that? That's Have Had great... you heard that?
1: No. George was my probably of all the Beatles to start with. He was my biggest friend because he lived around the corner from me. So I used to go and hang out with him all the time. But we did tour with him, and uh, and Paul used to stand at the side of the stage every time we did that song. I mean, I think that song got me into wings.
0: is touring with them how you got to know them or did you know them already from the music scene no, the we knew them
1: We knew them all through the, the early moody's days because we met them i met them in birmingham first of all my friend at the time the drummer bev bevan from elo was in that band right and the move yeah yeah and we opened for the beatles that in birmingham revolving stage a bit of a mess up with the cables flying out and things like that and i remember little stories like that but then we met them in London in a club and it was like a high-end showbiz club and we just sat with them around a big table and we all started talking and um, ordering drinks and whatever. We became friends from that time on and then later on when we were having problems with our management and finances and everything, we they got us in with Epstein. So um, we joined Epstein's Stable, and then we started touring their so those circuits, and then they put us on the second Beatles tour, which is fantastic. Also played on um, Jimi Hendrix's uh, night down at the Savile Theatre, which was another great night in London because Brian owned that theatre, and we opened for Jimi, and you know, it, was, it was a great crowd there. It was like like a raw variety performance type, like, but all the Beatles were there. Peter Asher and everybody. So I mean, yeah, they helped us in in many ways, funny You know, that's the, just because they were our friends, and they used to come and play us their demos on the way out of London, you know. I'm not their demos, they're acetates of their first of their recordings. And they'd drop by and just play and see what we think. So we were friends in that way, uh, socially too. Um, and, of course, you know, in the clubs, of course, where all the bands used to hang out, um, we just hung out with them. If they ever wanted to go out and see a, a band, we'd go with them or I'd go with them or somebody would. I mean, that's how we kind of, you know, did it all and in those days because there was a lot of American bands came over to England in those days and we'd just always go out and see them, you know, the birds and all those people it was a society really the the whole renaissance in london in those days of bands you know trying to outdo one another really but in a friendly way you know
0: it seems like it would have been just an incredibly fun exciting time to be doing what you were doing did it feel that way at the time
1: oh yeah but you you don't look at it as being fun and exciting you just find it it's You know, it's an energy that you're just part of. You feel the energy. That's what you do. Um, When you look back on it, you think, well, it was a lot of fun too, and it was exciting from an outsider point of view. But really, within that circle, we're all like, like I say, we all played the same gigs we did doubles up with a lot of these bands we played the yard birds and stones we, we did all sorts of stuff and mixed gigs with people and so it's a friendly competition to try and blow each other off the stage that's what it was like and you know but at the same time these guys became your friends because you were always around them at some gig or another or a club so that's what it was like. And, and, and when you look back on it, yeah, when you look back, you think, well, that was a happening time, you know, but at the time, it was normal for us, you know. We'd just come from out of town to the central where all the business was done, and that's what we all ended up living in London, I suppose.
0: When you left the Moody Blues, what was it that you wanted to do more than what, what you'd been doing with the band at that time?
1: Well, I just wanted to do... Uh, it's a difficult one because I didn't want to really leave but at the same time the bass player left. And when Clint left, it wasn't the same band again to me. You know, we'd taken all that time. Out. I'd say I was only in it for two, but I was in more than that. I was in more like a three. Like a year before we even came to London, I was still there. And and that band, it was like I was the lead singer there for, and wrote co, co-wrote some of the songs. And I was more or less, you know, getting my own way in that. But as soon as the bass player left, it wasn't the same. The harmonies weren't the same. The guys they got in weren't as good, you know, because they didn't, live the same experience and it just felt like a different band. So I just took there as an opportunity to say, well, I want to go off and do what I'm doing now basically, a solo scene. Because I had done that in, in between other things. And um so I did I did that just purely because it was fresh to me. And I, I went into the folk scene and I got did say it over mine came as a result of me being part of right. the and I, and I used folk players on it danny thompson for pentangle and you know some other guy on acoustic guitar they were all focused and john paul jones did the string arrangements which was great he was a session guy all those days and so it was danny Cordell produced it he was my friend from the moody blues album gus dudgeon was the engineer and it was done on the right level you know i, I liked what i was doing as a solo artist suddenly and um you know, that all went by the bye because my string players were, were always been going off on tours around the world in orchestras. You know, they were part of like that. So I couldn't work as much as I wanted to. I had a new thing, but it was restricted. So um, that's what made me like you know, lie around and wait for something to happen more. And then suddenly, of course, Ginger Baker got in touch with me. Well, I, I knew Ginger anyway, and I'd met him. But Eric and Ginger were down at Steve Winwood's house, and traffic's house, and I was there, and we had a little jam there. And it was, I think, Steve's birthday or me. And anyway, Ginger came up to me at another point later and says, do you want to, I suppose it was after Blind Faith, do you want to put a band together? I said, yeah, sure. Which I did for a little while. And then you know Ginger
0: Baker's Air Force.
1: Yeah. And then that was fun because I knew Ginger and Jack from the Chuck Berry Tour days. You know, those are the days they were in the, the Grand Bond organization, they were opening for Chuck Berry. We we closed the first half, they were opening. And so I knew them from those days. And therefore, again, like the Beatles, all through my, if you want to call it a career. I was always bumping into those guys, and so and Eric I knew really well because he, when he was in the Yardbirds, we used to work with him a lot. So it all came about that way. And then, of course, I was sitting around doing nothing, waiting for my band to get back off tour. Um, and uh, Paul gave me
0: a call, so that's how I started there. Yeah. Now, had you ever sung with Paul before he called you about Wings? Like, had you? Did you have you just like sang something together? No. Uh, now, I, I did go to a Sgt. Pepper um,
1: session, Fall on the Hill, I think it was, yeah, it was. Fall on the Hill, and they were doing all the harmonies, but I didn't I didn't take part in that, I was just kind of there. Um, no, didn't do any of that. But we used to talk a lot in the clubs and that, you know, it's kind of something to do was, and go and see bands, like I say. But other than that, we didn't really do anything together.
0: I was just thinking because your voices sound so great together and it's really one of the defining characteristics of Wings is you harmonizing with Paul. And, you know, Linda's often in there, too. But when you think of Wings, you know, one of the things you think of is that vocal blend. Mm. And, you know, he hadn't actually heard the two of you sing it together until you maybe had joined the band, which is interesting.
1: No, but like I say... They used to stand and watch us, and we used to stand and watch them when we were on tour, right. so a lot of that came from that and and I always heard the Paul liked the way I sang go now things like that, which is yeah, I mean our voices do blend, I suppose but again same influences, you know blues rock and roll uh, folk, all that stuff but we all the same influences um. Um, skiffle, you know, the Irish music, everything was part of our DNA really, so it it was just normal. We didn't have any problems with like working out what harmonies to do, things like that. I would know exactly and he would know exactly what harmony to put into me, for example,
0: without telling you, you know, so it was a pretty natural, yeah, combination. Wings went through such an interesting evolution because it really started as like a, a, you know, very sort of low key band where you guys were like showing up in clubs and not, you know, being being announced. And, you know, and later on you're playing, you know, Madison Square Garden and the big arenas. And, mm-hmm. and all, so it, it grew into this huge thing, but what did, what did it feel like? I mean, I mean, wildlife is a very quickly recorded album and that was the first Wings album. And then you're sort of playing these little clubs. Like what did that, feel like when you were just sort of doing those initial wings projects
1: well i it felt natural to do that because we weren't as rehearsed as yeah we'd like to be and the only way you really get yourself together is by playing live and that's where we came just where we came from was being in bands that played a lot you know um which gave us our fame in the end so starting again was very, very difficult as far as that goes. So to go and turn up at campuses to students were already there on campus and then getting a chance to play without the press scrutiny, if you like, um, it kind of tightened us up a bit, you know, got not right. everybody else used to it. But, I mean, I was already used to doing all sorts of stuff anyway, you know. I mean... That that was just like the old days to me, going around in the van, except you had Paul McCartney, who was very famous in the van. But to us, it was just kind of Paul, you know, in a van. It was really the press we were more concerned about and, and being given a chance to, to learn on the road without going in full tilt, you know, making a big album. and then. So it was all a progression thing,
0: really. And I loved it. I enjoyed that. And then Red Rose Speedway initially was going to be a double album. Um, You had a song on it called I Would Only Smile, which sort of came out in this later version of it. But at the time, they kind of trimmed it down to the single record. What did you you think of that whole experience at the time in that record? I
1: wasn't wasn't that happy about the fact they knocked it down to a single album. But there again, that might have had something to do with Glyn Johns and Paul. I don't think Paul was used to having a, a producer. Apart you know, uh, from George Martin, but again, producers just kind of sit in the background. You know what I mean? Um, they don't. They add to, but they don't. They're not in control. So the band's in control always, and and so you know, Paul didn't sit, didn't sit with it well with him having too much advice from Glenn Johns. That, that's the vibe I got. So and and Glenn was used to being that person. See? So right, he uh, he
0: started on that album at least. I
1: don't think he finished that album. No, he but... didn't, and that's I think why. I think that's why it, it it must have it could have had something to do with that because there was a problem there with the production situation. So I, other than that, but I don't understand why you know it couldn't have come out as a double album really. Yeah, I mean, you could have just gone in and finished it off ourselves. But there you go. That's that's life, I suppose. I don't I don't question it too much.
0: I was thinking about, I was going to ask you about it a little later, but I was thinking about the whole idea of working with outside producers because there was Glenn Johns for part of Red Rose Speedway. You had George Martin on Live and Let Die. And then, you know, later he was on Tug of War, which is, you know, you're still on even those technically post-wings. And then you had Chris Thomas on Back to the Egg. Mm. Um Otherwise, it was just Paul pretty much running the sessions, right? Of course. But again, you know, the thing is, like I said, Chris Thomas, for example, great guy.
1: You know, he was good with the stuff he did. And so was Glenn Johns. I mean, all the people they recorded, they all they all did a good job with. But we didn't necessarily need a producer. That's what I'm saying. Because Paul right. was always the producer at the end of the day. Um you know so that's really what it was i would always be there you know as well to to compare notes with and as well we didn't really need a producer that's the way i see it yeah most of the time we like i say we produced ourselves i mean the producers came in in handy when it came to the engineering and putting the final thing together and all that stuff and and then of course in george's case finding the, the people scoring the stuff Tony Visconti as well was was a music school guy on Band on the Run. But our job is really to get our thing down the way we want it, not that some producer telling us how to do it, because we never had that in the early days, and we don't want that. You know, see what I mean? We don't need an extra person telling us how to record or how to sing or how to do things. We know how to do that. We might have somebody encourage us to say, well, that was good, try another one. <laughs> right. know, that's about it really And that's that comes down to whether you actually Get along well with the guys You know, I mean I got on great with Denny Cordell Because of that, because he never said anything <laughs> He just sat there and went Try another one <laughs> So that, that was the fun of the, the producers Denny was never a producer Before he joined uh, up, he Did that album with us And he wouldn't have done that if the guy Produced Go Now wasn't sick at the time And he couldn't uh-huh. So he became a producer. Then he went on to Joe Cocker, you know, a little album of White Shade of Pale. Everything. Right. He, did, he did everything. He was just an amazing producer after that. But we introduced him to that. Nothing against producers, because, I mean, in some cases, they have to be there. But in our case, they never really had to be.
0: Band on the Run, you know, it's stripped down to... So Henry McCulloch and Denny Sewell are... In general. They leave, and then it's just the three of you, and yet you make this album that's like this great leap, in my opinion. At least, did you sort of feel at the time like, wait a minute, we're this is the best thing we've ever done, and and why do you think that was that happened under those circumstances?
1: I, I really didn't think it was the best thing we'd ever done. You see, I don't think of it that way. I just think it's the latest thing we've done, and I'm happy with it because first of all, we were under you know, pressure to do it to a certain degree, um, uh, to get it done in that particular time period. Cause we'd booked and gone out there
0: and we decided to continue with that. And yeah, it was it, your second album of 1973. You know, you had two albums out of here. Yeah.
1: So it was just an experience of being in an Africa and African drums. Ginger was out there too, but that was separate. He did, he did do something, but he wasn't really on the record. um, But, yeah, so we went and did that, and it was almost like a home recording, right, because all the equipment wasn't up to date. They had all the hand-me-down equipment for me and mine. We had Jeff Emmerich with us, which is great, because he did all the Beatles stuff. So we knew that was good. And so, generally speaking, it was like a home recording. And the fact that me and Paul had kind of... Well, we'd done rehearsals before we left, before the band didn't turn up. So we kind of knew the songs, and I would just play guitar and he would play drums. That's how we put the tracks down originally, to get them to get through the tracks. And then we would add whatever to it. Um, but it, I think it gave it a certain feel between me and him, see. Um, because you gotta remember, he played drums on a lot of stuff before, you know, on some of the Beatles stuff even. Right. And he was a fairly competent. He had a good feel, let's put it that way, and he wasn't a busy drummer, you know, which is fatal. So it was something that that worked between me and him as far as the feel went, and that's what I was happy about. We got a great feel on that album, see, which you don't always get with a band. You know, you might not be the right part, or, uh, you know, that guy's not playing that style properly, whatever. It's not always easy with the band. And, yet, it's more in, it's more easy with a couple of people who know each other and, you know, know what they're looking for. That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, no, it sounds like a tight, full band playing, and, yeah, and really well, yeah. it's very stripped down.
1: It does eventually, yeah. But as I say, we, we had guests here and there, obviously, but we did the initial backing tracks, you know, to get that feel. How did you and Paul co-write No Words? Well, I had... Couple of instrumental pieces. Um, That's all. And uh, he had asked me if I had any bits. And he said, Well, why don't we just join those two together? That would be the backing track. Okay, that's what we did. I had some words. um... (laughs) In fact, it was called No Words. (laughs) Meant a lot. Did they have anybody
0: words?
1: (laughs) Eventually that came. And then he threw in. Middle section with the no birdie low" that bit. And then, I, then he wrote the last verse, which kind of pulled it all in together because I didn't have a song. I had two instrumental pieces, like I said. And so uh, did you have that guitar part that was going? And the first bit with the, with the A rundown was another song. It was, well, it was just musical ideas, like I do all the time now. I'll get a little musical idea, and I'll still be sitting on there for months sometimes, and I'll think, oh, why don't I add that to this? And then I've got a song. You know, it's just like having a data bank really, of ideas. And that's what happened with a lot of that stuff. Yeah, so- Pica-
0: P- Picasso's last word sounds like that's how Paul approached that one, too, because there are all these little sections to it as well. True.
1: But there again, if you think about it, his style it's similar to mine in the sense that he likes um, concept type albums, one that leads into another, and little sections at the end of, and in the end, yeah, you know, all those bits are all kind of joined together. The Sgt Pepper was like that. They're pieces that, that all make join together become one in a way. So. That's how he kind of writes Band and the Room was 100% like that, three different songs, you know. So that's kind of how he, he, he likes to do things. And I think it's just to show what you can do with a piece of music. Classical musicians, uh, writers, did it all the time. They started out very simply, and then the second verse is just an aberration of the first, you know, and and improvisation, and that's it, and then go back to the beginning again. So it was all a matter of, like, what you could do arrangement-wise with a song that that was the fun part
0: of it, not just the writing off. Do you feel like your songwriting changed from, you know, working with Paul all those years? Um. Yeah, yes
1: and no, because, I mean, I always had a, a style which was similar, you know, to his in some ways. I always admired his writing, right from the early Beatles days. Um, and mine was similar because, again, the influences, you see. So I think what what happened with Wingsmore was I, I kind of, yeah, I got a chance to put some of those songs together with him, which was a great help. And also got a chance to play other instruments, you know, because I was right. getting with the keyboards and writing and and making. We'd make things up in the studio. We'd play whatever, any instrument, just to get a sound out of it. So I was, and played bass too live and all sorts of things. I got to do which I didn't get to do before. That was the best part of being in Wings for me. I wish, in some ways, I had written more songs, but there again. <laughs> I don't know. It just wasn't, you know, I left it up to him. He was always coming up with them. So, (laughs) yeah, it was just the way he is, you know. And and Picasso's last words was written in the spur of the moment, and everybody knows the story. Right, with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, so it was written. And we were actually halfway through doing another song when he came up with that idea and came in the next day with that song. And I thought, okay. You know, that's current, so that's what he wants to do. And um, and we did do it with that style of breaking it up into sections, uh, all to do with that European style, you know, all that stuff is very, right. Yeah. And so I like the fact that, and also he was, um, like me, a big art fan, you know, and he does actually own a Picasso. So the painting's on the wall, meaning, yeah, it is on the wall, he's got it. So, <laughs> yeah. and so I was always a, an art fan too. So I mean that that's where we we kind of lean towards art and music being you know an art form rather than rather than the pop song world. You see what I mean? We all try to it was a work of art rather, and then, and then of course because of that, they stopped being the three minute songs. You know, they suddenly now have turned into other bigger things and that that right. they they blew the cap off that years ago with day in the life and things like that where nobody would play anything more than the three three minute record so i mean all of that came from having the freedom in the studio being able to play more add more um, and i love arrangements i've always been an arrangement
0: person and so does paul so that's where it all came from not just the song yeah. right so Wings then added, you know, for Junior's Farm and then Venus and Mars, uh, you had a Jimmy McCulloch, young guitarist, and originally Jeff Britton as the drummer. And then later he left and was replaced by Joe English. How did, how did that feel to sort of be back at sort of, you know, be a full band again after the three of you had just sort of done fan on the run? Well,
1: it wasn't easy because, again, these are strangers that come along. You know, doesn't matter how nice a guy or or not, they're strangers and you can't just jump into that straight away with something that's going to take off right away. Um, Jeff Ritten, we saw him audition. We, we didn't even audition with him, but he was a good drummer in that audition. You know, he could play all the styles and everything, but he didn't fit in the band. It didn't work. That It just wasn't there, the personality thing and, and the Yeah, he wasn't as committed, if you like. So, when Joe English came in, he wasn't used to playing that stuff either. But he was, he was an exciting drummer, and he was a great guy to be around. And 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 you know, we needed a guy at that minute. I mean, that that's when we got to New Orleans, and we didn't have a drummer. So. You know, we'd already got Jimmy, who was a great little guitarist, but at the same time, he was just in one bag. You know, his bag was the old blues, and and he kind of prided himself on that. And he was very efficient. But, again, not a great ideas man, you know. Like, I mean, he sounded like a million other people, but he was just young and good. Um, Joe English was different. He had a different setup. He was like Ringo, a left-handed guy with a right-handed kick, that kind of thing. And he had a different style, and that kind of added to it, very much so. And he was very, very musically, you know, his head was very musical guy, and he knew what he was doing. It was great to play, have him playing behind you. You, you just felt secure with that guy, like Ringo did, you know, the sort of people you just rely on, and you know they're going to do do fine. So that made that album for me um, a lot better.
0: Yeah. And then At the Speed of Sound was the same lineup. Um, yeah. And he sort of like you know had everyone sort of singing a song on that one, and yeah, you sang two, and, and Time to Hide was a song you wrote. That's one of the standouts yeah. on that record as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, again, he wanted everybody to start singing. He, wanted, he didn't want to beat Paul McCartney from Beatles or every time he went out. He was trying to encourage people to turn it into a band more. But if you do that, you've got to be together for a long time before that can happen, you see. It's no good just saying we're a band. And um, so we weren't, in a sense, and that was one of his ways, of, I think, of like trying to make it look to the public, like we're trying to push that agenda more. And it kind of worked up to a point.
0: Silly love songs, the the vocal parts that you're singing on that and Lin- Linda singing on that. I mean, it's a classic Paul single, but all that vocal interplay, you know, on the part that would get cut off on AM radio, really kind of elevated that song. Yeah, exactly. Well, it would. It wasn't that big of a song without
1: that, <laughs> if you know what I mean. It was short, sweet, right. but that that gave it that extra thing. Yeah, like I said, arrangement is is what it's all about. And most of those songs were like that. They they were just very tiny little songs, two verses in a chorus, you know, elaborated, really.
0: And it worked. Yeah. So, and then it sounds like for London Town, you guys were gearing up for another tour, but Linda was pregnant, and then at some point... Jimmy McCulloch and Joe English left. I don't know if it was early in the sessions and then it was just the three of you again. What was the reason behind that and how did those sessions feel maybe compared to the Band on the Run ones?
1: Well, I don't really know what the reasons were behind it. All I know is that they weren't happy. I mean, Joe was an American over in England. I think he wanted to go back and I don't know. And then Jimmy was a bit young and headstrong and all that sort of thing. So, you know, they went and that left us to get on with it, which we always do. And that's how I think London Town turned out to be a great album because of that, in a sense. But, um, yeah, and it was done on a boat and all that stuff. It was a great experience making that album, in a sense. Um, But the fact that they walked away didn't really make – we'd done what we needed to do with them anyway, as far as recording and um, we didn't really need them at that stage so because they had left didn't make any difference we just finished it the way we normally would with, the, with whatever overdubs and whatever so yeah so that gave us back our three-piece situation again
0: so And you co-wrote five songs on that record, too. Like, it it wasn't just like a Danny Lane song and a Paul McCartney song. There were five McCartney Lane compositions, London Town, Children, Children, Deliver Your Children. Those last two you sang, Don't Let It Bring You Down, which I always think is like the sleeper on that record. That's like a beautiful song that people don't know. And then Morse Moose and the Grey Goose.
1: Most of those, well, not most, but certainly those last two were more poor songs. And I just helped him finish them, you know. Whereas, like, Deliver Children and Children's Children were my songs, and he had finished them. So the balance is there with the others, but uh, which were co written. And what we used to do, we'd go somewhere, either down to his house and make a point of getting together every day for a week to write songs, you know, or to Spain. We went to Spain for a week to do that once, just to actually sit and write, you know, instead of writing separately. So that's where some of those songs came from uh, or songs we had put together that way. So it was just a writing, you know, like a where we set ourselves that goal to sit and write. And that period was a great time, really. Um, I enjoyed that, you know. It it seems
0: like the most kind of folk influenced of those Wings albums, like the most acoustic and the most kind of organic sounding, maybe.
1: Yes. But again, because we both come from that folk style background you know it's like the british folk thing in a way you know it's it all goes back to robin hood and merry men it's all that that old folk stuff um and that's where we were grounded in so i mean that's
0: what came across which is great you know i'm really pleased that came about like that and then a year later, you have back to the egg, which is a much more aggressive, rocking, loud album. And you got you know another guitarist, Lawrence Jubert, another drummer, Steve Holly. What did you think of that incarnation of Wings? Well, I was responsible
1: for those two guys joining the band because I'd worked with Lawrence in a TV show. He kept handing me, and saying, "Do you need a guitar player?" I said, "Not yet." And Steve, <laughs> <laughs> Steve was a neighbor. Who came round one night and Paul and Linda were at my house and sat in on the drums and Paul says, Oh, he's pretty good. So next day we were talking about putting the band together, and so we thought of those two guys, simple as that. Um of course we did a small thing, then the Japan thing happened, which knocked that on the head. So they didn't really get a chance to to shine as a as a real band, you know. It was more recording again. But Again, you know, they were younger and they were kind of strangers, so it it all takes time. It takes at least a year before you get anywhere near being a band with, with strangers. So it just didn't have its, you know, it didn't have its day really, which is a shame. But that album, it seems to be pretty popular now. You know, at the time it wasn't that popular, but it seems to be there's a whole cult of people who love that album, you know.
0: I've I've always liked that record and and I think that it really holds up. I think the sound of it is tough again and again and again. You know your your song on side one is a really good one. It's it's uh, it's it's more of a you know straight out rocker than a lot of them uh, that you'd written. And just in general, that album just has this this you know energy to it. It seems like it's kind of like he'd been listening to maybe some of the new wave and stuff that had been coming out. I'm like okay, we're gonna toughen up the sound a little bit. That's right. That's right. That's what he did do.
1: And yeah, they were all kind of upbeat a lot. So I think he was trying to get across to the, the guys that this is the kind of music we want to be playing. You know, we want to be able to play hard rock. You know, now you're a session guy, you're not a, a, a band guy. You're you're some you you're a drummer, but you're not really a rock drummer. But you're you're kind of ninety percent there, you because know, you play with so many different people at sessions and stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like. But, but being a touring band is another story. You know, that's, that's, you become a different musician altogether when you. Right.
0: What did you think of the orchestra, by the way? What were those sessions I
1: like? Fun. I thought that was a good idea. Fun. And could have been more. But again, very simple piece of music that could have been to me a lot more elaborate. Could Yeah. Would have used a lot more, you know, of the talents of all the people involved, but it was a quickie. And for um, that, I suppose it worked. But I think the idea was to see whether it worked and then to maybe later go on and do more stuff with various people like that. Which ended up being the talk of war, you know, when they started inviting people over to Montserrat to, to work with other musicians more. Um, but like I say, you know, John Bonham was a close friend of mine. Um, he, he was on it. And then a lot of the people I didn't know, I knew all the who, I knew all those guys, um, you know, generally speaking, I knew Dave Gilmore a little bit, but I didn't really know the guys that much, you know, apart from, you know, our little crowd. But even so, I think the idea was to make that orchestra,
0: more of a thing, and it never really got off the ground interesting I mean the rock orchestra theme is fun, but it's it's like twenty five people playing the same note, so absolutely,
1: absolutely but and it could have developed. you can imagine if everybody got their heads together to do something, you know, but it didn't it's just, just Paul, okay, this is the thing, here is how it goes, you know in one day, <laughs> so it wasn't like really, really thought out other than that
0: do you think that paul's arrest in japan pretty much killed wings
1: yeah well it certainly killed that too but i mean again for me i wanted to go to japan like because we got we were there five years before we had our visas revoked so we don't you know we we didn't want to have that happen and i couldn't go there again because once you get busted that's it you're done for five years but Yeah, I still went ahead and did those other albums with him, which weren't really Wings albums, you know, because, again, it was just another project or two projects. It wasn't looking upon it as being a Wings
0: thing. He did McCartney 2 by himself, Mm. and then... Tug of War was a much more elaborate production with George Martin. It's after John Lennon's been murdered. But obviously you're still on it. Linda's still on it. And I was wondering if there was any sense that maybe that was going to be a Wings project and it just became a Paul McCartney project instead? It's never going to be a Wings project in that sense because, well, we had all
1: those guests, you know, Ringo, Stanley Claw, Steve Gadd. Stevie Wonder. Yeah, all those people were on it. As an experiment, you know, it's a different album now. It's not a Wings album. It's a different approach. And that's the way we probably would have gone on. But, you know, I just thought, well, this is a good time. I had an album at the time I'd been working
0: on. And it's a good time to go out and promote that. And I did, and I never went back. That's really what it was. I found an April 29th, 1981 1981- Newspaper article that said that you'd quit Wings. So it assumed that Wings still existed at that point. It said you'd quit Wings because you wanted a tour and Paul did not. Well, that's a little bit too, you
1: know. I mean, I might have said that, but that's really not the story fully. I wanted to be out of tour more. Yeah. Not that Paul did not want to. It's just it was in kind of hard to because of this bust. You know, it's like, it restricts you from going to certain countries. It makes you go back in the studio again. And I was just kind of at at that point where I didn't want to spend another two years in a studio. I wanted to get off and and do things with, uh, you know, whatever. So it just wasn't right timing for me. I I, I was kind of tired of studio work or, or I'd done enough of it that I needed now to play live. And because, because we couldn't as a band at that time, I thought, well, you know, I've got nothing else to do, so I put a few mates together and started going out and playing, which I didn't really enjoy anywhere because it wasn't as good. But it was something to do, and I did it, you know. But um, you know, I, I'm st- I did the Wings thing, and I'm still doing my own thing, That's great. and doing that, so I don't really want to be in a band, if you know what I mean. It's that those days are over for me. I'd rather just do my own thing and and augment that or add to that with other members if for certain things. And at the moment, I'm doing the songs and stories. But I did go out, like I say, with a band and for quite a few years doing other stuff. So I kind of, you know, I don't really want to be a member of a band in that sense. I'd rather be just be me. Um Doing what I'm doing now, and that's that's playing all the stuff that I that I want (laughs) to play.
0: Right. When's the last time you two, you and Paul, were in touch with each other? Oh, a couple of months ago. I he kind of
1: talked me into getting my um, vaccination, but um. Just over, well, you know, his brother-in-law died, John, I knew, so. Well, thank
0: you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I I loved seeing you live. I'll try to, I'll I'll see you again when you're back in Chicago at the City Winery. Thanks for all the the great music and everything else you've done over the years. Thank you again, and we'll see you here soon. Okay, my friend. That's all for episode 69 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Denny Lane for his openness and keen memory about Wings, the Moody Blues, and his solo works. You can catch his Songs and Stories tour starting Friday, February 3rd, at City Winery in Nashville. Other stops include City Wineries in New York on February 7th, Boston on February 9th, Philadelphia on February 11th, and Chicago on February 19th. Tickets for these shows can be bought at citywinery.com. He'll also be performing in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and St. Charles, Illinois, among others. Go to Denny Lane's Facebook page for more information about his tour and his music. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who delivers again and again and again. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, at Carole Popcast. And you can follow me as well, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com. where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Gotta go now.